gorgeous Georgian goes, are you ready? Junkie Nation, are you ready? Well, let's get it on. From the fight capital of the world, Las Vegas, Nevada, this is MMA Junkie Radio. We roll it! What is going on, Junkie Nation? Gorgeous George and Goes reporting for duty here on a Thursday. Happy to be with you here for the next hour or so. We've got a guest, Sherrod Seward. He'll join us. He's an immigration, uh, combat sports immigration attorney. we got some questions that we probably thought of over the 15 years of doing this show along the way when you hear, oh, he couldn't get a visa, she couldn't get a visa, or whatever. You know, you either as fans, hearing about boxers or MMA fighters, just not a, being able to participate. Uh, or during our time as media when a Leon Edwards couldn't get out of his country, whatever things, so many things have happened. He's a specialist in that. We'll also talk about the fight coming up. Corey Sanhagen uh, versus Song Yadong. That should be a good one for the Bantamweight division. Remember, Bantamweight crept up. It's my number one division right now because of its depth, its drama. There's just a lot, a lot of killers there. Young ones, older ones, guys that can't stand each other. It's really, really fun stuff, so we'll definitely preview that. That's the UFC fight night that's coming up. Dana White Contender Series, <laughs> rinse and repeat, another five contracts. We'll share our thoughts there. And, of course, all the biggest news, including Dana White and Brendan Schaub, the Eskimo brothers, well, allegedly, they, uh, they uh, I guess, brothers fight from time to time. That's all I'll say. We'll, we'll touch on that when we come back. It's MMA Junkie Radio on a Thursday, September 15th. You know, because that one day when Brendan Schaub joked about being Eskimo Brothers, <laughs> I thought for sure after that, uh, Dana White would maybe just leave that dude alone. Seems like mm-hmm. they have a little bit of dirt on each other. However, to be fair, I was listening to after Dana White Contender Series when Dana White was meeting with the media. His first attack, or really his only attack, was at Pat Militich. And it was only at the end when they pointed out that Brendan Schaub maybe had thoughts on UFC 279, the old switcheroo being a conspiracy, that uh, that that his name came up, and or at least that I heard. I mean, I, I can't watch and hear every Dana White interview, but that particular one, when they said it, he just kind of went, oh, okay, you know, kind of like, like a par for the course type of reaction, but was there something I missed? Did I stop that video too soon, or what is going on here that those two are at it again? Uh, yeah, it was just kind of a... You know, he thought for the most part it was Pat Militich, and then they told him no, it was Brendan Schaub. But by then, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, it's not like he would say, "Oh, Brendan said it." Well, he's not a maniac. He's not like right. everything. That, so yeah, everything. Just that and all that stuff. Yeah, he, right. he basically moved it over to him. <laughs> right, and so, um, hey man, Brendan came at him pretty hard. And here's the thing, though. You know, Brendan had the opportunity to sit back and type whatever he wants and, and all that. It was great. Don't get me wrong. Everything he said was, was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know, man. Like I'm kind of on that side. I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy at all. I'm not saying they don't exist or that they, they don't sometimes actually happen, but 
fuck, man, have you ever told your friends a secret? Like, who can really hold a secret nowadays? Like, it all comes out eventually. Mm. It all does. So something to that magnitude, uh, that just sounds kind of whack to me, especially when you're relying on a Diaz brother to keep a secret or something, you know, like, come on. Yeah, I agree. I even even Yogi right now was chiming in. He can't keep secrets either. But um, you know, I'll just say this: if you become one of those people, you're gonna doubt everything, and then life is just not gonna be fun to you. Sometimes things don't work out, and that's that. There's people that watch games, and then if it doesn't go their way, oh, it's a fix. The fix is in the refs, the NFL, the NBA, whoever. It's just. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, and, and so then you start applying that to, you know, oh, the guy I wanted didn't get elected or the, the, the bill I wanted to pass, you know, was smashed by some local politics. You know, whatever. I mean, you just start to doubt everything. Like, seriously, I mean, it's just it's never ending. You know, it's a never ending process. Um and and like Ghost said, could there be some stuff? I don't know. Did was there really aliens over New Mexico? Maybe, you know. But wait, where's the hard evidence? And is the government burying it? I mean, then they they're doing a good fucking job, aren't they? At this point, it wasn't that like forty years ago or eighty years ago. I don't even know Roswell. Mm-hmm. So if, if if they are burying it, then guess what? I haven't heard of the aliens coming back. I guess it's buried. So good job to them. <laughs> Who knows, man? Don't even get me going on this. Anyway, Shab and 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 Dana, yeah, like it's it's pretty interesting what's when those two kind of go at it. I guess in Dana's defense, he you know he, he, what could he have said at that point? Oh well, then I kindly remove everything from Dana uh, Pat Militich, everything I threw at him, and now that I know it's Brendan, I have no comment. I mean, it was too late. The switcheroo had been done. Brendan did come, kind of come after him pretty good, but um, it, it, I, okay. So the, the the theory is that either I think pay per view sales were slow, so they needed to switch up Nate versus Tony. Does that really sell better than Nate versus Hamzat? Hamzat's pretty popular as well. You know, the matchup seemed a little bit more even, but um, you know, it still involved Nate. He was the guy. So it was just a matter of switching up a few a few matchups. I don't think they're going to make a good, one of their top future stars embarrass himself like that by missing weight by so much, you know, and, and then having to pay a bunch of fighters extra money to do the extra matchups. Seems silly to me. That's that's a lot of things that have to to happen for something that's not like a guaranteed. Like I, I, as a fan of the sport, I don't know that I could tell you. Yeah, bro, if that were Tony Ferguson at the top, I'd definitely tune in versus Hamza. Like, I, I don't know that that's, I mean, that's arguably doesn't even make sense alone. So I don't see why you would do all of that just to achieve that or for that, you know, the opportunity of that. Yeah. Now, as we've stated, and I'm probably blue in the face now with this, it's just, I believe the whole problem stemmed from UFC 279 wasn't built to the caliber of a pay-per-view. Outside of, yes, you did use one of your top two or three pay-per-view stars in Nate Diaz versus possibly a future star in Hamzat Shemaev 
only problem being is you have to pair up certain guys against certain guys or gals against certain gals. It's not always just going to be like, you know, there, there's very few athletes that kind of transcend it all. Like Connor versus anybody was a big sell. Ronda versus anybody was a big sell. But Ronda versus like Cyborg or Ronda versus Misha, that's an upkick. You know what I mean? Connor mm-hmm. versus Nate turned out to be an upkick over Connor versus Eddie or Connor versus um, whoever else. You know, and Jose, I suppose. It, it, it just it just clicked a little bit better. So you you know the, the two names have to kind of match up. I've realized Tony's popularity. He has a legion of fans. It took me a while to realize it, but it's there. They're, they're ride or die with them, and I, I think it took losses. Yeah, I think it took losses mostly for me to realize uh, just how popular this guy is. And he's kind of reminding me of Tito Ortiz in a way. Tito Ortiz is just super popular, win or lose. He could lose five straight or win five straight. He has built a following. And that's what Tony Ferguson has done. He's built a following, and they're riding with him. Now, that's why maybe I'm making the comparisons is because Tito used to say a few outlandish things, win or lose. Tony's kind of been saying them as well win or lose, and that's fine. You know, like, it's probably so difficult to be, I wouldn't say humiliated, but, you know, some fighters feel humiliated, but just to basically have to submit to another man or get knocked out by another man or whatever, you know, in front of millions, um, it, that, that's got to be humiliating, you know, especially when it happens over and over. When you're used to being the man, used to being, like, known as one of the toughest 155-pounders on the planet, and now that's no longer happening. And that's happening as you're a, a aging, so you're not getting out of your body what you used to get out of your body, you know, in practice or in real life. And, and that's just – I always think about, like, you know, what, what men go through between their forties and fifties and Tony, you know, some can go through that a little bit earlier, mix that in with the traumatic brain injuries that combat sports athletes get the, the ego that's built up when you're the man. And then when you lose and you're getting less texts and less congratulations and, you know, less uh, sponsorships outside of the octagon, I bet you that that's pretty deflating overall. Oh, well, think about just the pressure to maintain that, right? Whatever high you've ever experienced in combat sports to maintain all that stuff. I've seen fighters. I can't name names, obviously, but I've had fighters at like press conferences and stuff. Ask me if I could like bring my friends and ask for pictures because they're with like a girl or with family or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're just not as popular as they used to be or that sort of thing. Like, dude, that, you guys have to understand being a professional fighter, especially one that has reached highs, it's an addiction. It's a high. And when that starts to go away, that's why you see these guys that can't go away. Some of them, it's because they can't let that go or they haven't planned for that to go away. And um, it, it's sad, man. It really is. But that that's the nature of our sport. Agreed. If you want to read the post that Brendan Shaw made, you know, it's a long Instagram post. He comes at him for being, you know, a shoe dork or something like that. You know, he's 50 some years old and he's collecting shoes like he's a young kid. And 
he's he's a bored billionaire or soon to be billionaire is what he is. So I don't know how you can really rip Dana White. He's kind of won the game, you know. And yeah, two famous people or two rich people in this case, his uh, friends from high school helped him fund an idea that he had. But it's not like Dana hasn't put in the work, right, goes. I mean, the dude is grinded. Oh hell yeah, years. dude. Along the way, maybe stepped on some necks here and there, and maybe he could have done things a lot better here and there. But this is really, really a, a tough business. I think what he he did, what he had to do. But to this, I would say, hey, hey Brendan, you know, you got kind of a lift from Joe Rogan. It started out with him kind of embarrassing you and telling you you're no, you're no longer the type of heavyweight that's going to win a title as long as King Velasquez is around. Remember that that little incident? But along mm-hmm. the way, I think Joe felt like ah, maybe I went in a little too hard on the guy, and but, you know, he kept including him in that fight companion circle, and then he started slowly bringing him in and, and giving him an opportunity for the, uh, the for the comedy career to to uh, have life, have legs, the podcasting career as well. You know, every time Brendan went on Joe's show, everything Brendan wanted to promote, that got bigger. I'm not saying Brendan wouldn't have had successful podcasts either. I'm, I bet you he grinded and figured some stuff out there as well. But a big lift came from Joe Rogan. That's the same thing that happened with Dana White and the Fertitas. Yeah. So, you know, some of the things that, Brent, I mean, look, it was all funny. Okay. But some of the bags I just didn't really get because if I had that kind of money, I'd be a shoe dork too. You know, I, I'd be buying all yeah. kinds of shoes as well. They're probably just selling them to them. It's not like anybody uh, accuses Brendan Shaw of wearing pro wings, right? Like, I mean, he kind of likes that too. And then, uh, yeah, the thing about the Fertitas, I mean, it's it's out there and everybody knows it's not like it's something that Dana's ever tried to hide. But once he took that torch, um, boy, did he build something with it. You know, like there was a long time where Dana didn't even miss a card. You know, he's flying all over the world. So I may not agree with everything Dana White does, uh, but I can't argue his hustle. Like he, he puts in his time for his, for his work. And the one thing that we, I think both of us have always said was, I don't know that the UFC is here if that was somebody else, you know, and, and I'm not, it's not a knock on other people. You could put a, a very good businessman, I think in Dana White's shoes, but I think it took a little bit of his like brash personality and to kind of uh, get it to where it is today. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have to give him his props there, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was a 10, eight round. I just don't think Dana White's going to say anything back. Yeah, I, I would just let it go at that point because the other guy seems to have the loose lips. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you just want to move on from that. I mean, Dana's got his family. I'm sure Dana has thick enough skin that you could probably say whatever to him, but he's got a family and just it needs to just end, in my opinion. To, you know, they, they each do some shots and that's it. He goes, there's another unfortunate um, thing, you know. I'm not sure we talked about Elias Theodoru. I know we brought him up on spinning back click, but when you and I did the show on Sunday, I believe Sunday night we found out we he passed away. So to our audience, we've yet to really talk about this. We were hearing liver cancer. It looks like the family released a statement. Colon cancer. Either way, cancer sucks. Fuck cancer. Totally aboard on that. I've seen it take a lot of lives for people that are close to me, family and friends. And this guy, 34 years of age, a guy that we interviewed recently who was kind of like a positive guy. He had dreams. Not, no one I knew spoke ill of him. Just 
like that. Like he didn't really reveal it to the world. There was no like diagnosis to say everyone keep me in your prayers or nothing like that. And that's it. He's just gone. Like, wow, that was really, really shocking to me. Yeah. Uh, you actually brought that news to me. And man, I was, I'm working on a project for MMA Junkie. And so I, I had to go back through some text to find some stuff. And I came across his name. And I was just like, man, I, it's just like George said, we just saw him. It really did, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. And full of energy, he had just trained. He was always passionate about everything that he talked about, you know, everything that no matter what it was, he was always super passionate about it. And, um, you know, you see some of the stories that people are posting, like Mike Chiesa had a really nice one about his jacket. Uh, that's kind of who the dude was. You know, he was just a really, really nice guy that had time for everyone. And uh, he'll be missed. You know, that, that, that one sucked. Lots of tributes coming in from the MMA community and even old, uh, old uh, Sean Strickland, who wants to constantly be bagging and, and saying, you know, the most rawest, crudest things. He even said some nice things about his friend and teammate. Um, and I think he even admitted to his social media audience that some tears flowed. So definitely big loss. He was 19 and three overall. He was an ultimate fighter season winner nations i believe it was called so that was very cool he had an, a record in the uc of eight and three i mean that's respectable bro 11 fights and you won eight of them honestly you know he should never have been cut and then he had a little bit of fun with invicta you know and and the new promotion that he was working on and being the first mma fighter to get the tue for medical marijuana so it's unfortunate that this, uh, this, this cancer snuck up on him, age 34. That's just how that happens. I don't know. Now, colon cancer, folks, you always hear about when you turn 50, get checked for it. And you, you being proactive can definitely assist in fighting off anything you may have when they can catch it earlier or at least giving you the peace of mind that you're in the clear of one of the cancers that comes around that age. But... I guess we learn stuff all the time, and uh, it, I would say that consult your doctor. And, well, if you're 50 and over, for sure, get it done. But consult your doctor, and maybe, maybe it may not hurt to get, get it looked at earlier. I know one thing. If it runs in your family, then even even more. So you should get checked out. Yeah, for sure. Here's some unfortunate news. An MMA manager pleads guilty. He's already been sentenced after the arrest in an FBI child sting operation. Kyle Stoltz is his name, a longtime MMA manager and co-founder of Genus Sports, Genus Sports and Entertainment. He was sentenced to 48 months in prison after he recently pleaded guilty to a charge stemming from an FBI sting in 2021. He's 42 years of age. This all went down in Nevada. I know that he represented uh, at some point Liz Carmouche, Eli Malay McFarlane was another athlete. Um, it was mostly Bellator names that I had seen, but um, you know that that's a couple of champions there. Uh, both of them have held that Bellator flyweight title. Liz Carmouche was a title contender in the UFC, if you recall. She was the first one that had a shot at. 
the belt that Ronda Rousey was awarded coming over from Strike Force and becoming the new UFC champ. So, um, yeah, it's terrible to to read that. And enough on Stoltz from me. I didn't personally know him. I don't even think I've ever had any interaction with him directly. I mean, I know we've had his uh, guests on the show. I don't think I ever had that, that I remember had any interaction. But the reason I say enough of that is all I can say is, man, my heart goes out to the families that suffered because of, of this guy. Yeah, that almost, uh, I don't know all the details of the case. I, I read a lot of it, but uh seems a little lenient uh, for something like that. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a terrible thing. And uh, I'm glad he got caught you know, before he could do some, some real damage. So. Yeah. And I guess this, this had happened a few months back already. We're just kind of catching up a little bit on the pleading guilty and the sentencing, but uh, yeah, this had, this had happened a few months back. Uh, This thing that took place where he was caught. And so we had like an undercover agent, I guess, posing, you know, and that's what he fell to. The other names goes were Taiwan Claxton and Terrell Fortune and Linton Vassell, by the way. Those were some of the other names. If you want to know more about this, um, you know, read the article on MMA Junkie. I want to give a shout out to Bloody Elbow as well. They they were the ones that kind of originally covered this. Uh, unless I missed it on Junkie or uh, a few months ago, but they had a little bit more details early on of, you know, the arrest and and things like that. But us at Junkie, you know, we've kind of brought you up to up to date here with what's going on. So you can view, you can view the arrest report, depending on how detailed you want to get. And you can read, you know, all the details like Go said, the 48 month sentence, which kind of does seem lenient, um, especially when you involve, just when you kind of throw the word children and any harm being done to children goes, I'm thinking throw away the key. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I guess we're in the hands of a judicial system in whatever state you are, and you hope that those people that were appointed or were voted in or whatever do the job to the best of their uh, ability. So, yeah, yeah th- there's details there on how this thing took place and how he, I guess, fell to it. Uh, we also give a shout-out to an MMA reporter, Mike Russell, towards the bottom of our article, so maybe he has more on, on that as well. Check it out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's all I'm going to say on that one. Me too. Let's talk to Sherrod Stewart, or Seward. I've been trying my best. It's Sherrod Seward, and I started off as Sherrod Stewart goes in my mind as I was kind of researching him and then realizing there ain't no T in, 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 in Seward. It's Sherrod Seward. He's an immigration attorney here in the United States that's worked with a lot of athletes like Tyson Fury and Canelo Alvarez. And uh, I got, we got some questions for him. We'll be right back and we'll talk with the counselor. Gorgeous Georgian goes always delivering the guests. Today we get to talk to Sherrod Seward Esquire. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. You know, I practiced your name all day. All right. I was like, 
Sherrod <laughs> Seward. And I had to be sure it ain't Stewart, it's Seward. And it's And Sherrod. then when we walk yeah, when we when you walked in and Jen goes, Meet Sherrod. I was like, Oh, hey, how you doing? And I'm like in in my head, I was trying to uh retrain it. Man, uh happy to have you here. And I'm gonna tell you how when Jen was telling me about you, what immediately went off in my head, because obviously we worked in, in the MMA world, but all the different combat sports come across us, right? Bare knuckle, submission, and kickboxing. Anyway, you don't know how many times a fight will fall off and they'll ask the UFC president, Dana White, what happened? And he won't give you too many details, but he'll give you something. He'll go, fighter visa issue or mm-hmm. whatever, you know? And now some of it was related to the pandemic. A lot of it, a lot of the world shut down. But I think a lot of it, honestly, I just think a lot of fighters probably have different backgrounds, you know, different reasons for not being able to leave their country. So I'm glad you're here so you can kind of explain to us the process of fighter visas. Yep. You've worked primarily with, or notably with Tyson Fury and Canelo Alvarez, and I was like, oh, okay, like big-time stuff going on here. Yeah, so on the boxing side, I think I work a lot directly with promoters, uh, top-ranked boxing, salita promotions, um, or, you know, some agents that'll be doing something with the promoters. Like, I work with Matchroom through one of my agent partners. And then on the MMA side, I work with a lot of the bigger agents mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the promotions carry, do the visas themselves. Like, you know, UFC does visas themselves. Uh, PFL has somebody to use. And also... Um, What's the other one? Bellator. They have uh, somebody they use too. Uh, But I come in with the agents uh, to get visas placed with them that are usually longer. And I have it so that they can fight in either promotion Mm -hmm. um, using that same visa without getting cut. The P1 visa is the one that that we'll talk about. Right. So you recently had that lawsuit that you won, correctly? So I'm usually doing P1s. Mm -hmm. And then also I'll do O1s for like world champions or like um, Tyson Fury because they do more than just fight. You know, he might want to go start a... uh, a restaurant or something like that. So that O1 gives them better work authorization uh, than the P1, but it's only appropriate for like the top level. P1's like more directly attached to an actual fight, an event. O1's more like what, like an extended stay where they can, oh, he's going to be at WrestleMania in a few weeks and he's going to do... Yeah, so, an opening of a new restaurant over here. Yeah, so the P1s have to be tied to competitions. Got it. You can technically come on an O1A and not compete at all. You know, you can come if you just want to train or something like that. So say sometimes if there's a guy that maybe won the Olympics, but he's never had a pro fight, it might be actually hard for me to get a P1 for him. Mm-hmm. So then I'll do an O1 because it doesn't require an actual competition that requires participation of international athletes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a lot of times if it's a smaller promoter, you can't get a P1 because they don't think it's important enough to require the participation of international athletes. Who actually even knows what that means? Mm-hmm. Hopefully I get to do a little bit more lawsuits and really figure it out. <laughs> Shared sports visas is on the map here because of the P1. What I guess what happened was a fighter had to be attached to the promotion and the event. And you fought for the fighter's ability to not necessarily be tied to a promotion Right. They may be tied to an event, but not the promotion. Is that what the, yeah, that, that, yeah, is that what the that, difference is here? That's what we're yeah. That's so kind of what we're like, doing. It helps out free agents a lot. It helps free agents, okay. and it helps the fighters be immediately op, uh, available for short notice opportunities. Yeah. Um, and those are a plenty, especially during the pandemic plenty. time. Yeah. Right. So you know, just not to get to, like in the process, there's like three problems that you have to do. One is you have to give them approved for a P1, and then you have to get them an, uh, an interview at the consulate which is actually becoming more difficult than getting the P1 approved in certain places. And then when the pandemic was going on, you had to be on a special list uh, for presidential exemptions when they weren't allowing anybody in from Europe, uh, Brazil, and uh, South Africa. So the UFC, when they... Because um, they were primary 
Yeah. There are countries that were really, really, really hit by the pandemic. Okay, yeah. So the UFC got on the same list that the NFL and and I think the NBA tennis were, were at, that there was a place in the White House, it was actually Giuliana, Giuliana, uh, Mayor Giuliani's son, that had the list. And there was about six leagues that got on there. And of course, if you had the big lobbyists, you were on there. But I had clients like top rank that weren't on there that I had to go and kind of lobby myself and figure that out mm-hmm. to get them placed on that list. So you had to get them approved for the P1, find a consulate, get that expedited because the interview dates were like a year from now and get the presidential exemption to get a lot of those fighters here during the pandemic. So there's like three or four things that can mess up and not get it done. And <laughs> I got a funny story when I was on uh, Instagram and I have a UFC former champion as a client of mine and I'm looking and they're like, fight announced for so-and-so. So I'm like, oh, oh, because nobody called me and they knew that their visa wasn't together as mm-hmm. a UFC co-main event. And we had like a month to get it done and it was a Brazilian fighter. So all this stuff had to go right. And I knew I was going to get that call the next day. Like, so what's going on with their visa? Like, you could have asked me this before it got, um, you know, put put on the press. Because I'm looking at it on Instagram, like, freaking out. Because right. if something goes wrong, who they're going to point the finger at, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is all very unique work. What drew you to, to this? You know, have you been a fan of combat sports your whole life? Or how, how did you get yeah. to this point? That's a great question. So I went to law school in Cleveland, Ohio. And there was a promotion there called North American Allied Fight Series, which brought us Steve Amosic, Cody Garbrandt, Jessica I, Cody Nolove. And they're all amateurs at the time. And so I used to help with do work, sell sponsorships for that promotion, and then kind of help when they started going to the UFC doing their contracts. Um, so when I got around to starting the law firm, the first call I got was for somebody looking for a green card. Hated it. Just they were just, you know, getting married or something like that. And my second call was for a boxer. And um I gave him a deal. Who? Uh, Edith Edith Agoki. She's um, she was an Olympian, and I think she got uh, she got pretty far. I don't think she might have got a bronze medal, and uh, that was maybe four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my rates are higher now, but I did a deal with them because I didn't, you know, I was just starting out, like you know, five hundred dollars for like five visas. I just did the last one um, last week, but I always forget that I gave him that price. So that's mm-hmm. not my price, guys. <laughs> but that's what I had to do to get on the door, which I was grateful for the opportunity because since from then, I just never look back and that's all I do. Because what they say, if you want to be a certain type of lawyer, you only take those type of cases. And you know, we literally don't really do anything else. Wow. So, okay, in, in our sport, George and I, we've been doing this show for 15 years and we've kind of gone through different stages of our sport, mixed martial arts, where in the beginning, when we would tell people what we do or... Uh, about our sport they wouldn't take us serious you know it was always boxing and all the major sports when you have to go and advocate all this or even a a meeting with a consulate do they sometimes look at mma differently maybe from other sports or boxing did they not take it as serious as it caught up um yeah i would I, i would say it's about the same i think where it might be a difference is is that there's only a couple mma promotions that have broadcast deals so some of these regional shows, they'll, they'll look down on and won't give them uh, the credibility they need to, to do a P1. But one kind of nuanced thing we do when we're doing mixed martial artists is that we don't call them MMA fighters. We call them professional martial artists. So that way we can put in jujitsu tournaments um, you know, and other type of uh, stand-up combat sports, not just the MMA promotions, which helps us on the itinerary list to you know, have more shots at getting whatever they're looking for. Uh, if they do happen to look down on MMA fights, so then we say, well, we have kickboxing on there. We have jujitsu, um, underground. Well, a lot of them actually yeah, have competed in other that. sports. Yeah. And we need that sometimes to get them eligible because they might not be ranked in uh, MMA on topology, but they will have uh, you know, 
a jiu-jitsu world championship or something like that. So by making their job title more expansive, we're allowed to get more done, uh, even for fighters that are not even all that um, accomplished in mixed martial arts, just that specific sport. You know, and there's a lot of that, like combat sambo. Um, now you got the bare knuckle fighting and stuff like that, which is actually hard to do. Submission grappling, submission Muay grappling. Thai events, mm-hmm. uh, kickboxing events. Yeah, a little bit of everything going on. And right. now even the, um, I mean, he's he's boxing legit, Jake Paul. Mm-hmm. He's gaining he's gaining his traction there, his respect there. But for a while, people were calling calling it almost like celebrity boxing. But it was selling so good that you kind of had to pay attention. I know it trafficked well on our site. Yeah, yeah, and and now he's putting together like you know real cards. I was at the um the fights that he did in um in Cleveland uh, with uh, Tyrone Woodley, and I put a couple fighters on the card, mm-hmm. and they were like you know legit you know like fighters top top uh thirty ranked fighters, uh, Daniel Du Bois who actually put an O one because he was just that good enough to get that you know which is a higher level visa than the P one, um, which I did just in case they didn't take the event seriously, so mm-hmm. it wasn't tied to the event itself, just in case they looked at it like um, celebrity boxing. In boxing, the promoter handles all this? He covers all these fees um, for the boxer? The bigger ones usually do. So yeah. Matchroom and Top Rank and like Salida Promotions that have broadcast deals will get a lot of their own. But there'll be a lot of smaller promoters that are just stacking talent. So that way they can get their promotion points when they come and bring in the B-side of them. You know, mm-hmm. There's some guys that just specialize in having a lot of B-side guys that come in and fill the cards. And they get paid by getting a couple points off of putting the fight together along with the fight purse part of it too. So it all depends. And in MMA, if they go through the promotion or they go through the manager, who handle who who takes care of the fees there? I imagine the managers yeah, so, takes it out of the fighters. Right. Yeah. So um, the managers, if they're not signed, usually go ahead and take care of the cost of the visas, and they probably recoup um, once they start fighting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then right now, a lot of the promoters like to get their own visas, even if I've got them one too, um, just because maybe they want to be listed as the employer a certain way for like, you know, tax purposes or compliance things, especially if they're, you know, publicly traded. Yeah. You know, we all know mm-hmm. which that, yeah. <laughs> which one that is. So, so a lot of times they'll get what's called a concurrent visa. So that way it doesn't interrupt the visa that I did for them. Because if you don't do it a certain way, the visa I did for them can go away. And then if they lose two fights, they get cut and then they'd have to go interview again to get that visa I had for them reapplied uh, wow. to their passport. Did you know USA Today Sports has MMA rankings? I did. <laughs> okay. Because you, you brought up Tapology, um, which they've been around. Right. And, and obviously, we're with MMA Junkie, who's owned by USA Today Sports. But USA Today Sports, I mean, they track back to the early 70s or early 80s of uh, college football. That was like the main ranking system. You know, mm-hmm. Now, of course, they do college basketball, high school football, um, college football. They're part of the equation when it was... Uh, the the coalition I think they used to call it you know mm-hmm. now they have an actual playoff but yeah you feel to know, free like, to use the USA Today sports rankings because they rank all of the promotions not just UFC but Bellator one championship PFL right. Invicta for the ladies is you know they have but the uh, the, is, they have certain divisions that the other promotions don't so but they're already signed though and those promoters so I'm like I'm going back and looking for somebody that's maybe like ranked three hundred. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. So, I mean, do, you, do those rankings go back? They, that no, point? they only go about to 15 each. Right, 15 each. So with that's an honorable should... mention. But I, yeah. I thought you meant that Tapology didn't have enough validity from, you know, whoever, UC, US, CIS. Yeah, US, you CIS. Yeah, and so I was saying, well, USA Today definitely, you right. know, The thing is, weight. like, those guys are usually pretty, 
much already taken care of because they're already in the promoters. That's why mm-hmm. they're, they're ranked on USA Today. But I'm looking for the guys that are before they get there. So usually that's why we use um, Fight Matrix, which is actually looked at a little bit better um, for that purpose than Typology, just the way that they kind of calculate and put it together. But I mean, one of those problems that we're having is just inconsistency because we do the same thing like every time. So mm-hmm. if something goes amiss, it's because they did it, you know. <laughs> and what are some of those reasons for denial? Right. Um, so, yeah, that we hear of. So the one, um, sometimes it's eligibility, which means, is this athlete internationally recognized? And there's seven categories of that you have to prove to. Usually when I'm looking at MMA, I'm doing international rankings and then significant awards. And like I said, those significant awards and rankings don't have to be in MMA when I expand their title to professional martial artists. I can go to whatever one they want. Um, and then uh, you can do expert opinion. So a lot of times I might go to a journalist and say like, hey, you know, can you help me out with a support letter to say that this award in combat sambo was important? So that's the first place you can get denied is eligibility. The second is what I sued on um, was um, the itinerary for a P1, which can be, that's where, that's where I have it out like with them because they'll say, they were saying, we want opponents and dates for the next three years. And so I went so far to just like, I pulled up the NFL schedule. So like, it's not up for next year. And I know that you approve all these football players, you approve all these tennis players and their schedule is not up with opponents for next year. So how do you ask that from us? And right. so that's what we went in and uh, sued on and, um, and won. So what happens when you sue usually is the district attorney is not an immigration attorney. You probably just kind of want to get rid of it. So they, it took maybe like two weeks. They reopened the case, approved it, and then asked us to voluntarily dismiss. But, you know, my stance with it is if they do it again, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to voluntarily dismiss, if I can find the right client again that's like going to, um, you know, stick with it. And kind of go see, because at some point, if I know I'm sending the same format that has hundreds of approvals and we're getting different results and we know what a good candidate is versus like who's not, the difference is like over there. And we can't see what officer has our case. They used to put numbers on it. So if there's a pattern, you can see what officer number it was. Then they said uh, they want you to do a Freedom of Information Request Act to go get those numbers. And they still didn't come back. So at some point, that's what we're going to have to really sue on just to find out who's looking at our cases because we can see most of the time we're getting approval and then there starts to be like a pattern where it's getting, you know, hit for by the same time. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea who's on the other end, on their end, but they can definitely look us up and see who's who the petition's coming from. And because our office does so many petitions in combat sports, they they know who we are. But, you know, we can't see them behind the veil. And so if they... Like confession. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which but. I'm due, man. It's been six months. Uh, all right. So it's basically what you were able to get is the athletes a longer stay with n- not having handcuffs right. to a certain promotion. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant right. because a lot of it has to do with being ready and being available mm-hmm. for a lot of the promotions. And mostly when we say a lot of the promotions, we're talking about the USC. They drive the sport. They have almost 45 events per year. So they're the ones that are constantly filling cards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all the major players, you know, PFL, Bellator, uh, them. And if they want to do like these crossover fights, like say if they got caught out to fight Jake Paul, they would need a visa like mine because they're not they're not an internationally recognized boxer, right? So they would need a type of petition that's structured for combat sports in general um, to have that work authorization to take, you know, combat sports fights that are not MMA mm-hmm. if they wanted to. Could you take us through a scenario that we see a lot in our sport where fighter A is going to fight fighter B, Fighter B falls out for some kind of issues or whatever, and they need that last replacement. 
Mm-hmm. What is that when you check on your phone? What is that date that you need? Like, what is the amount of time to make everything work where you say, hey, guys, you're pushing it here? And how does that process work? Right. So the fastest way to get the approval part of it is um, using premium processing. That's the other thing. The filing fees for this can get up. It costs $3,000 to just file a P1 with premium processing, which you get 15 15 calendar days for them to make a decision. And that doesn't have to be an approval. I got a situation right now. for a co-main event, a boxing fight, to where everything was together, the boxer has everything in place, and they asked me for a letter from a labor union. Hmm. Which we Why know is that? I don't know. We might have to sue and find out like what that is, but it's just like we all know there's no labor union right. for for boxing, but it creates a major issue because I need a month mm-hmm. for everything to go right and get it done. Um, but when they do that, they reset the clock. So I don't have that 15 days anymore because they'll send it on the 14th day and be like, we need a labor union letter. And meanwhile, the appointment set, everything set to go, and that can throw the whole co-main event off. So usually if they're in Europe or Mexico, I like a month. If they're Russian, I don't know. It's just like, you know, we'll get it done when we can get it done because we have to send them all over the world to get visa appointments, and it's changing. Like we used to send them to Dominican Republic. They stopped that. Then we sent them to Bahrain. And right now we're sending them a lot to Istanbul. Mm. So wow. sometimes it depends on where you're from because the consulate dates for appointments are much better. Like the appointment dates in France are six days. Sometimes I just happen to know them in my head because, mm-hmm. you know, UFC we're solving. Paris? Huh? Because of UFC Paris? Uh, well, no, I know them because just because I have the promoters ask me if I can do ridiculous things all the time. Got hey, it. can you get this done in six days? It's like, okay, like, where is he? <laughs> if he's already in the United States on a visitor visa, that's different because they don't have to go get a, an interview, right? I can just change their status from visitor visa to um, P1. And then if we're getting very, uh, you know, adventurous, we can have him fight while the P1's pending and then, like, kind of fix it later. It all depends on the risk appetite for the athlete mm-hmm. and the uh, – and the promoter. But sometimes the athlete will want to do that because that opportunity is just that good. It's just like, okay, let's fix it at the consulate. But I'll be like, okay, at least have a visa pending. You can come if you're in Europe on an ESTA visa waiver, which is like you come without a visa, fight, we'll set your interview for right after. Have your manager hold your fight purse. Don't cash the check. And then, wow. Yeah. That's a, so I wanted to ask you this. Um, when somebody knows exactly what they're doing, which obviously you're very well prepared I think the biggest obstacle are inconsistencies. I think that's the most annoying thing, especially when you know everything about what you're doing. If they were to come to you and say, what are maybe two things that that we can do to make your life a little easier and make this process better? What would be those two things that could really streamline this? (laughs) Right. One is just be the same way every time with this itinerary and be fair about it. Right. And then the next thing would be, you know, this labor union thing, like, you know, the way it works is like, if you're in the MLS, you go to the players association and that's the labor union that they Mm -hmm. have. But like, if we just get it understood that there is no labor union in combat sports, and also we can't possibly give you dates and opponents every year, I'll be fine with that. That's like, you know, all we would need. And and anything else is like fair game. Like, you know, if they believe uh, an award is not significant, that's a, you know, an objective thing, a subjective thing. So, you know, I can get that. But this itinerary thing is crazy. And I need consistency because, you know, um, you know, in combat sports, we're not we don't really have too many competitors. But as we go to get in the NFL and NBA, I'm dealing with really, really big law firms. We can't afford to miss, you know, 
And so if we just get that itinerary thing fine, I can do a lot for that. And it helps a lot of the unsigned fighters. It supports the industry. So that's the main thing I need. I need itineraries to be straight and then understand there's no labor union in combat sports. Yet. Does the geographical placing of these athletes, where you're telling them to be in certain countries, it basically parallels on the political side what countries were um, friendly with, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I imagine a Cuban athlete would be well, you can't. way more difficult. Right. So they'd have to get out of there. There's nowhere for right. a Cuban to interview. Um, You'd right. have to get them to Mexico, for example, or something like that, right? Yeah, you have to go to Mexico or um, Colombia. Because I'm wondering, I know a lot of Russian athletes are in Abu Dhabi. A lot of them are in Thailand. And I'm wondering if that's those are basically the reasons they've set up camps there just because they want to make this process e- uh, easier. They can't interview in Dubai. Um because they don't allow, so some of these countries don't allow third country nationals to get interviews. So I've, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of fighters doing camps there. I know McGregor's camp like was out there and we we're trying to do some things, but they wouldn't take any third country nationals there. Um, in Thailand, they do, but they can get aggressive. Like Pudi Yan's uh, whole right. coaching staff got denied. And I, I heard, like, I didn't do that work, but I heard it was in a, in Thailand. Um, so that's why it's kind why of Why did they get target. denied? Um I guess we never found out the reason. We just heard they did. Now, and so, he actually had fighters yeah. um, cornering him. Right. So a lot of times, if it's just no reason, that, like the worst reason that they'll say at the consulate. Now, this is different from if we're talking about eligibility. This is after your visa is approved and you're going to a consulate with your approval papers and stuff like that. So a lot of times in some countries, and this is where, you know, it depends like where you are. And it's like will happen a lot. For example, it happens a lot in Nigeria. They'll say you don't have enough ties to your home country. And so we don't believe that you won't return on that. And they'll even do it sometimes. So it sounds like you have to have property there, almost like a regular visa, right? Right. So like we'll go and say, we have property. Do you have kids? Do you you belong to a church? I don't know. Like we're just like, you know, we'll come with anything like we can to do that. But some of these visa categories, you're not even supposed to ask that, which is called dual intent. Dual intent means it's fine for you to come and say like, hey, I don't plan to come back. So on an 0-1, it's mm, dual intent. Really? It is fine to I say that. Okay. Yeah, because it's a, it's, a, it's a certain way you can transition to a green card without any sponsorship. You can self-sponsor your stuff um, on the immigrant version of the O1A, which is an EB1A, which a lot of like world champions, they'll go. So if you see like a foreigner like win their championship in the United States and then you notice that they don't fight overseas for a while, it's usually because they're transitioning to a green card and they have to stay in the United States for eight months until they get their authorization to, to leave the country and come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was one of your more notable, um, uh, I guess, cases that you can share that, I mean, the team had to work and hustle, but you made a fight happen that we all got to enjoy, whether oh. it's boxing or MMA, yeah, preferably think, MMA, or give us one of each if you don't mind. I got you. Yeah. I was going to see if I was going to talk about the one now. So <laughs> I'm going to see how that one goes first, because uh, I might have to sue. Um so the last one that was just like scary was Better Beef, Arthur Better Beef um, fight. He's Russian, but he's been living in Canada for a long time. He usually fights in Quebec. And uh, I think he's he's probably ranked top eight in the world pound for pound. Oh, man, he's a monster. But uh, he, that one had me nervous like for a little bit. So right now, one thing that they're doing that the Biden administration did that's good is that you can get an interview waiver. So you don't have to go to the interview. What you do is you send your passport in. And then they stamp it and they send it back to you. And they usually do this if you've had a visa before or if you're in Europe and did an ESTA visa waiver. So we go through the process and they say like, hey, you're good for a waiver. So we send the passport in and then they deny it like right there. So the fight's in like two weeks, main event. 
I think it might have even been in Madison Square Garden or something like crazy like that. And I'm just like, wow. oh my goodness mm -hmm. gracious. So we went, uh, you know, worked with Top Rank. I said like, hey, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna set three different interviews in Canada. We're gonna do one in Ottawa, Toronto, and somewhere else, and we're gonna try expedite all of them. And we're just gonna see who says yes, because you don't necessarily know which one's gonna be the expedite. So we got him expedited in Toronto in like four days. He went down there, did a great job in his interview and took it back. And I think the problem was he had uh, he had fought, I think on an ESTA visa waiver like, uh, or something like a visitor visa, like in his first pro fight. You know, he's like 20 fights in, it was from something years ago, right? And all we're doing is just answer the question. They're the ones that told us to send a passport in, just to say they denied it. So that one was, um, that one was crazy. Uh, let's see, mixed martial arts. Um, I kind of spoke about it like already. I'm trying to think if they'll like let me say the name. Um, say that name. <laughs> say the name. <laughs> All right. If I get trouble, we'll get trouble later. But it's Jessica Andrade. Yeah. Oh, nice. Former um, strawweight champion. Yeah. So, oh, here's something interesting to know. In Brazil, I get them the visas usually for three years no matter what mm -hmm. but in brazil they'll only stamp your passport for three months oh it's so, only three now it used to be six yeah so oh. it's three months so if you come in your p1 interview they'll stamp your visa for three years but you can stay in the united states the whole time yeah. but if you leave to come back you have to get another interview now mind you this is during covid and all that type of stuff too Ooh. and you know sao paulo and all that they can be very temperamental with whether they're giving expedites and like and all that so she just got caught in a situation where her visa stamp had uh expired and i don't know if maybe they thought that she was in the united states already and it wasn't a problem oh that was the other problem the other problem is that she messed around and said uh and she you know she doesn't speak english that well but she has like an interview where she says yeah i'm moving to vegas and so we just talked about do you have intent to immigrate mm -hmm. right so she actually got a problem with that because she had press out there that said I'm trying to move to Vegas mm. on a P1 but she's on an O1 now so I put her on an O1 which it shouldn't matter um, but I think maybe they thought they would shoot that's the one I was on Instagram and I see that the fights announced I'm just like ooh and yeah I got that call that email the next day yeah. <laughs> from the powers that be like what's going on with that situation I'm like yeah they just dropped it in my lap right yeah. so those things make me sweat though because I know if they don't go right you know you know where the blame's Gonna go. You know, it's not my problem. I found out on Instagram. The, you know, I could have got that call two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, before that, but that that was scary. And that's one thing. That's an interesting thing. Some countries you can only get your visa stamped for a certain amount of admit uh, admission period. And Brazil just happens to be three months, and which makes a lot of logistical issues uh, with bringing the Brazilian fighters in. Mm -hmm. uh, let's end with this. We ask this of all of our in studio guests. You look like you're an athlete. Mm -hmm and people get in trouble or whatever, but do you have a good street fight story you can share with us? We're an <laughs> MMA show, man. We ask everyone that question. A good street fight song. Yeah. Before, you know, the Esquire days. For the Esquire days? Well, yeah, like, so, in, uh, in my it. undergrad. I knew it. I knew Sherry <laughs> got down somewhere. No, in undergrad, I went to um, Hampton University, which is uh, an HBCU in uh, mm -hmm. Virginia Beach, and um, I don't know if a lot of people have seen the movie Drumline. Yeah. But yeah. I... I by accident ended up in one of those. It's basically all the singers had all the drum line, um, the drum set jobs. So there's just like, you know, you have to be in the drum line or whatever like that. Um, but we have a particular, a particular rival 
uh, one day. <laughs> and I remember it was my freshman year. I'm not going to say like what school it is. I don't like saying her name. Starts but, with a G? Oh, you're talking about Grambling? Yeah, I don't know. No, so we're in the MEAC. So we play like um, Norfolk State, uh, Howard. Oh, so more in the Virginia area. Yeah, yeah. Okay. More, more around there. And like FAMU, Bethune-Cookman. Um, we switched out now. So we're in the Big South. So we play like, I don't know, some boring schools like uh, Wilbur. Um, uh, I can't even think of their names, like North Charleston or something, something like that. Got you know, it. I'm sure this school got a big check for like moving, <laughs> moving <laughs> conferences. But yeah, but we had like this one day it was a hot. I remember it's September 3rd, and uh, the other team wanted to battle us, but they didn't say where they were. So we're walking all through campus. You know, we're like marching over Greek yards. That's where the problem probably started because we went over somebody's like you know fraternity plot. Right. But we didn't know that it was a fraternity plot, and so you know, there's a room you can't break the ranks. So basically somebody comes and breaks the ranks and stuff like that. And I'm just like, I'm the one with the biggest bass drum. Boom. <laughs> well, it was on, huh? <laughs> it was on. So it was on there. against a fraternity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't even a band. Oh, wow. It wasn't the other <laughs> band at all. It wasn't the other band at all. But I just remember I took that bass drum and I, I tried to defend the ranks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So. All right. And did it turn into a big mess or was it just you and someone else like a one-on-one deal? Um. Well, I guess there's like uh, there's a bunch of people like involved and stuff like yeah. uh, stuff like that. But I did actually get to use my jiu because I wasn't trying to like really hurt anybody off. But I had to wait to get my drum off to go like grab the guy. I trained jujitsu and stuff right. like that. Mm-hmm. So I remember I had the guy guy in the rear naked. I didn't I didn't squeeze it though. I just kind of just held him there or whatever. But he was a big dude. He was he was way bigger than me nice. at the time. Yeah. yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. Thank you, Sherrod, for stopping by and informing us about all this. This has been great. Hey, thank you. I like to talk about it. Because nobody talks to me about this stuff. (laughs) It's just for the fun of it. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for having me. Well, there you go. All right. He answered some of them questions. Going to a certain country is key in... uh, So if you're in a country that is more difficult to get out of, the first thing you want to do is kind of almost transplant yourself to a nation that we work with so that you have more uh, availability in getting in and out quicker. That was kind of one of the main things I got out of that. Yeah, no, that part's really key. And um, I mean, that, that, that seems like a nightmare to deal with before the pandemic. You know, when you add in pandemic stuff, uh, I can't imagine how crazy and complicated that gets. But he's an expert in that realm. So, I mean, that, that's kind of, it's, it's almost like uh, when Dolce first came around, you know, Mm-hmm. And uh, and fighters could just count on one guy that as long as you did what he said, you knew you would make weight. This kind of seems like one of those situations where if you just follow what Sherrod says, he'll get you there. You know, Kind of makes sense why I've always heard of a lot of Russian fighters that are in Thailand. Like remember when Peter Yan's team couldn't get out of, I believe it was Thailand, to get to one of his recent fights. But a lot of yeah. Russian fighters are in Thailand or in Abu Dhabi versus just being in Russia. A lot of Russian fighters are in the United States as well, but there's, I guess there's just certain countries where, uh, like I say, the immigration process or the visa process is a lot easier. That's what this helped me understand a little better. Mm-hmm. All right, so how about this? We mentioned his name earlier. Sean Strickland says, Shemayev has a better shot at being UFC welterweight champ. Do you agree with him? Let me lay it out for you. He's a guy that has been winning at welterweight as of late, but he does have a, a couple middleweight wins. But he's also a guy that struggled to make welterweight recently. However, if the UFC can see past that, 
he could maybe anoint himself, or, or he may have been anointed as the number one contender when he beat Gilbert Burns, and then he decides to do this fight versus Nate Diaz, which kind of didn't really do anything. And even if he made weight, it wasn't going to do anything to solidify. Beating Nate Diaz at welterweight is not really anything that gets you closer to the title. It just makes you more popular and puts more money in your pocket. And I guess keeps you sharper for the eventual fight. I thought it was kind of smart, honestly. Not that he knew Leon Edwards was going to knock out Kamara Usman, thereby us now needing a uh, a trilogy just to settle that. I think we all thought, well, Usman's probably going to win this, and next for him will be Shamayev, unless Nate Diaz has something to say about it. And as we all know, none of that happened. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Edwards won. The trilogy's on. It's probably going to happen next year. And to, to top it off, he didn't beat Nate Diaz. He beat Kevin Holland. All respect, that's a tough matchup, probably even tougher than Nate Diaz. But it, it, didn't, it sure as hell didn't happen at uh, welterweight. So that's the welterweight stuff. The middleweight stuff is he's fought at middleweight before. I guess he recently technically competed as a middleweight last weekend. Uh, but he beat a guy who had moved to welterweight because Holland has moved to, uh, to welterweight, even though he's fought at middleweight. That middleweight champ, though, is still around. And he's been clearing out the division, so it could be that he does need opponents. So there you go, goes. I ask you, where's his best chance to get a title shot and not only that, win it? I think middleweight. You know, you're counting on everybody else in welterweight. Like that whole Usman and Edwards thing still got to play out. Um, Let's just say it were to be uh, Usman because he won one already and he was on his way to win the second one. I think that would be a tougher matchup than Israel Adesanya. I know that kind of sounds crazy at this point, but only because Israel's wrestling just isn't up to par to what he would probably need to defend a guy like Hamza. Now, granted, if he can keep it on the feet, then, yeah, that could be trouble for Hamza. Mm. But uh, I think we were very clear in what his intentions are in a big fight. He saw how quickly he shot on on Kevin Holland. Mm. I would imagine he would do something similar like that against Israel Adesanya. So I would actually think it's it's at middleweight. And at middleweight, well, all you got to do is now we throw out out the door the whole weight issue thing. So you just got to make weight one time, probably against a guy like Paulo Costa. Uh, You dispatch a Paulo Costa and boom, you're right there, right? So uh, I would think middleweight is probably his better route. You know, it... Israel lost to Blahovich a year and a half ago. And if he were to fight Shamayev, it would probably be after the two-year mark of him losing the, to uh, uh, Blahovich. If in those two years he made it a point to really address his wrestling and work on it, not every day. I'm not saying all that. Um, I'm not saying to fly to the mountains of Dagestan and go on a six-month run. No. Just work on it, then he will have it will have paid off because he is going to have some people that are going to try and take him down. It, he's very good at stopping the takedown as a middleweight. And to be fair, Blahovich is a much bigger man. Um, but when Blahovich did get him down, Izzy had no answers. And Shemaev just strikes me as someone that has doesn't have Blahovich size, but has Blahovich power. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you're right. He could he could maybe do that pretty quickly and get it done over with pretty quickly as well. Um, I don't think Adesanya's jiu-jitsu is, like Kevin, is, is on the level of Kevin Holland. Kevin Holland's a black belt. However, you're right, goes to get there, I don't know that they just go, you're next. He's going to have to go through someone. And if it's someone like Casa, that's tough. 
So the road to get to him is tough. As far as welterweight, I think it's a timing thing. Like, well, we still got to wait out those two. Sure. And then aside from that, it's like, and can you make weight? Uh, let's find out by you taking one more fight. And if it's Covington, that is not a day at the park. You want you want to know what needs to happen? Those of you, I mean, George can see me on camera, but basically this is Bobby Knuckles and this is Hamza. They need to do this. Bobby Knuckles needs to go down to 170 and Hamza needs to go up to 180. And I think that would uh, that would make sense of a lot of things. Yeah, and and Mike Dolce, uh, he kind of retweeted or liked the comment that I said. I bet you look, Dolce could get him down. Easy for me to say. I'm not the one that has to do it, right? But mm-hmm. just, you know, Whitaker used to fight as a welterweight. He looks like, after what I've seen Jose Aldo and, and uh, Edson Barbosa do with their bodies, some of the most shredded guys ever, and yet they were still able to go down and compete and win some fights, I believe that it can be done the right way. But, you know. It's not like Whitaker sucked as a, as a middleweight. I think he's 12 and 2, 13 and 2. Like, seriously, like, take Izzy. And those two losses belong to one guy. Take Izzy out, and he might be the middleweight goat. Although Anderson Silva just texted me and said, easy there. Uh-huh. I'll back off on that one. But look, let's just finish up here. Just a couple more things, and then we got to get out of here. Corey Sanhagen versus Song Yadong this weekend. It's the UFC fight night. They're back here in Las Vegas. Who do you like in this one goes? You know, when Corey Sanhagen's on, I think he's a he's a very tough out. You know, his his the size that he brings into that division, um, when he fights a certain way, I think he can be very, very tough. Song Yudong is very good at closing that dif- uh, distance and just kind of not giving a shit about what other people bring to the table, and it's more about what he does. So this is like, to me, it's close to like a pick em fight. I think this can go either way. But if you put a gun to my head, I kind of like Corey San. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I like what Song Yudong's saying. I like his mentality and where he's at right now. But I'm going to go Corey Sanhagen. But by a hair. Yeah, Sanhagen's not as big of a favorite as I thought. He's about minus 190. Song Yudong comes back at plus 160. Let's not forget Corey San. Sanhagen's coming off two consecutive losses, albeit to some beasts, but Dillashaw and Young, uh, uh, Peter Young. Uh, so no, no shame there. But man, five eleven, that reach seventy inches—that's pretty good reach for a, a bantamweight. You know, someone that fights at one hundred thirty-nine, uh, thirty-five pounds. Excuse me. And on Song's side, you know, he's on a three-fight win streak, and they're pretty impressive especially the Marlon Marias fight. Although he may have been catching Marlon Marias, you know, in this little tailspin of a career that he's had towards the end. I mean, that guy was honestly one of the top bantamweights ever. And then he just kind of had a, a similar to like what Tony Ferguson's going through right now, but he's finishing. He's finished him. He finished Julio Arce, Casey Kenny. He could submit you or he can KO you. And he's with a good team. That's got, um, you know, that that's built some champions and that's team alpha male. So we'll see. I think it's going to be a very, very competitive fight. But, yeah, I'm going to lean towards Corey Sanhagen. Uh, Two-fight losing streak and all. Those are quality losses uh, where he competed very well at times. So I'm with Sanhagen on this one. And, of course, we got you covered here at MMA Junkie. You can check that out, all the pre-fight press conference stuff that they've done, you know, the one-on-ones that the fighters have done. 
the uh, weigh-ins, and I don't think they do ceremonials for Apex, but those morning weigh-ins, you can always tune into our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash MMA Junkie Video. And we always have you covered there, all the drama that comes from a weigh-in, especially last week. I don't think last week can ever get topped. But, uh, yeah, that YouTube channel, you should become a subscriber. YouTube.com forward slash MMA Junkie Video. That's also where you can catch the Spinning Backlick, our weekly series here on MMA Junkie where We go over the latest stories in MMA. We take you through a spin of the biggest stories in MMA. Leon Edwards, congratulations on the black belt that you got. Uh, Aljamain Sterling, he's going to be on the desk for UFC Fight Night 210, providing a little intel there, I guess, on the division that he reigns over, the Bantamweight. So that'll be interesting to see. I've heard his podcast before. He's pretty good at breaking down the fights. And, of course, tons of other news there on the front page. Shout out to Chidi Njokwani. We've known that guy for such a long time, such a nice guy. He's fighting goes. I think he should have been in the UFC a long time ago, but he, the time that he's been in there, he's been making the most out of it. So... I'm rolling with, with uh, Njoku on this one. Thank you, George. <laughs> We're out of here, folks. Enjoy the weekend. We'll see you all next week. Go out and be a champion. <laughs>